0: I want to record something about noticing, and I want to tell you what I've learned. I know you may be thinking I'm about to talk about listening to the warnings that life serves up. Like Oprah says, you know, pay attention to your life when it whispers, because when it shouts, it'll burn your house down. And while I believe that advice in every cell of my body, and it has saved me more than once, that is not what this episode is about. It's about listening to your life, not because you're missing some kind of dire warning, but because it makes me cry just thinking of this all of the beauty and all of the meaning and all of the everything i think is hidden in the ordinary sunday through thursday nights i sleep in an eye mask and i wear orange earplugs and i cross my arms over my chest like a vampire and i sleep like a dead woman i am someone who needs sleep more than anything otherwise i literally i have a different personality so i really I really believe in sleep. But on Friday and Saturday nights, I leave my mask and my earplugs in the nightstand drawer. The reason for this is that I like to listen to the sound of my life, the sound of my house and the people in it. I like to hear my husband's breathing, the sound of my dog's collar jangling as he changes position, which is often. I like to hear the sound of the heater clicking on and off. And I like to imagine my two beautiful girls breathing and dreaming and growing in the room kind of adjacent to ours. And I like to imagine my beautiful little boy and his sweaty little face as he sleeps, breathing and dreaming and growing. I lie there and I think, I made this. This life is actually mine. And it's happening to me right now. And everyone is healthy, including me. And what this does for me is it allows me to fall asleep in deep gratitude. But what I like to think of is awake gratitude, meaning that I fall asleep fully aware that any of it can change in a word, in a moment. I mean, even if everything goes according to plan and, you know, tragedy is somehow avoided, these three sleeping children will, God willing, and God help me, move out and leave Sal and I to each other like it was in the beginning. It's all gains and losses, losses and gains. And that listening to the sound of my life at night keeps me connected to that. And staying connected to that makes the whole scene more beautiful and more magical. And it makes me want to just savor it and absorb it in as much detail as I can. And it makes me want to do all of that without becoming fearful or grasping. And that balance is delicate. That practice is like being an emotional contortionist, like extreme emotional yoga. (laughs) This willingness to listen to your life in the most ordinary moments with a total openness to the heartbreaking impermanence of it. And I think it creates a kind of reverence. And sometimes it's a melancholy joy that allows us, I think, to live with hearts that are completely open to all the beauty and all of the tragedy at the exact same time. And for me, as we communicate from this place, from this deep reverence, I think we speak with more gentleness and more perspective. We're less reactive. It becomes easier to perceive which battles are worth fighting and which battles are just paper tigers, right? Distractions, barriers. And I think it makes us feel more compassion for those around us who are the chaos causers, right? Or the negative Nancys. When you listen to your life and you allow it to really penetrate you with its ordinariness, you realize that we are all of us doing the best we can with what we know. And we begin to see each other not as robots or, God forbid, adversaries, but as people who may or may not have had the chance that day to appreciate the beauty of being alive and ordinary. Maybe they didn't get those few moments of noticing that you did, and that's why they're so grouchy. I find this practice allows me to cut other people more slack. Because opening your eyes and ears and senses to the great mystery of a Tuesday morning, let's say, Makes you realize how fragile all of it is. How fragile we are. And you know what? I think good art comes from this place, from this practice. One of my favorite stories is how John Lennon met Yoko Ono. And listen, I was born in 1974, so I didn't have the Yoko Ono hang-up that maybe y'all who were born earlier than me have. I'm Yoko Ono neutral. But like my mom's generation, they have real strong feelings about Yoko Ono. I'm not one of those people. I love the origin story of John and Yoko, and it goes like this. It's 1971 London, and while there's some fuzziness around the versions of this story, I went to an interview in Rolling Stone to confirm this, and this is what the interview basically outlined. John Lennon had decided one night to check out an avant-garde exhibit in London where Yoko Ono's art was being featured, and he saw you know, different pieces of Yoko Ono's art that night, but there was only one that really spoke to him. And it was an experiential piece of art, my favorite, favorite kind, the kind you have to actually physically inhabit. He had to climb up a ladder. And once he was at the top, he saw that there was a little tiny message, like a little tiny piece of paper with a message on it. And the message was so tiny that you had to use a magnifying glass to read it. And you know what the word was? The word was yes. The word was yes. And that was when John Lennon began to fall in love with Yoko Ono. And what I love about that piece of art is that to me, it's the perfect metaphor for what I'm talking about. The ordinariness of the ladder, right? The slightly uncomfortable moment of getting onto that stupid ladder because they're never as stable as you want them to be. I don't care how expensive and nice your ladder is. Those first few steps on a ladder are a little scary. And then you get to the top of the ladder. Only to discover that the message you were looking for is so friggin' small, you're going to need some kind of tool to magnify it, for God's sakes. And when you do, the message is affirmative, positive. And depending on your mood and inclination that day, sometimes that yes we find feels like a gentle reassurance, like an angel at our side. And sometimes it's a real kick in the ass. But the message is always yes. And by listening to our lives in this most ordinary kind of day, we grasp that magnifying glass and we say yes. And when we make art and beauty and meaning from this place, I think it's good art and meaning and beauty. And it reminds me of one of my favorite plays of all time, Our Town by Thornton Wilder. If you know me well, you know this play is like, (laughs) it's like a religion for me. Thornton Wilder published *Our Town* in 1937, but Act One of the play opens in 1901. It's a meditation on time, past, present, and future, and it's about this average American town just going about its business of living and loving and dying. And it's all very folksy, and the language is very hokey and kind of aw shucksy, which is very much actually the point. The playwright is making a statement, even in the folksiness of it. And Act One is called *Daily Life*. Act 2 is called Love and Marriage, and Act 3 doesn't have a name. And the narrator, who's the quote-unquote stage manager, just says, I reckon you can guess what that's all about for Act 3. And in Act 3, we see—oh, God, Act 3 is so good. We see one of the main characters, Emily, who's now a woman. Apparently, she has found herself on the ghost side of the Our Town equation because she's died in childbirth, and Act 3 takes place in the town graveyard. And Emily's there. And she's there with other dead people, and everybody's watching Emily's funeral with Emily. Because it's small towns. Everybody knows everybody, right? Half the dead people in the graveyard were at Emily's wedding, for God's sakes. So she's watching her own funeral, and she's realizing that her life is over. And Emily starts to beg the all-knowing stage manager to send her back to experience a single day in her human life, just one last time. And all the dead people are begging her not to do it. They're trying to warn her it's a terrible idea, but they never quite articulate why it's such a terrible idea. They speak about it in kind of oblique terms. But whatever they say, Emily's not trying to hear it. She wants to go back. And so they somehow convince her that, okay, fine, if you go back, at least choose the least special, least interesting day. For some reason, these ghost people are convinced that the average unspecial day is the better choice than a really, truly spectacular special day. In fact, the line is, choose the least important day. It'll be important enough. So Emily chooses to go back to her 12th birthday because she's insistent. She's like, okay, fine, I'll do something ordinary, but I at least want it to be happy, okay? So she revisits the ordinary happy moment of her 12th birthday. Just before, so the stage manager is like, all right, fine, we're doing this. And so just before Emily walks back into that day, she's observing the scene from sort of the side of the stage and she's overcome by seeing how young everyone looks, how amazing all of it is. On this day, like so many years ago into her history, she's just dazzled by it. And she delivers these gorgeous lines. Listen to this. I can't bear it. They're so young and beautiful. Why did they ever have to get old? Mama, I'm here. I'm grown up. I love you all, everything. I can't look at everything hard enough. And then she walks into the scene. And then she says, oh, Mama, just look at me one minute as though you really saw me. Mama, 14 years have gone by. I'm dead. You're grandmother, Mama. I married George Gibbs. Mama, Wally's dead too, mama. His appendix burst on a camping trip to North Conway. We all felt just terrible about it. Don't you remember? But just for a moment we're happy. Let's look at one another. And it becomes too much for Emily, right? And she asks the stage manager to take her back to the graveyard, and she asks, "Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it, every every minute?" And the stage manager says, "No." But then he corrects himself, he catches himself, and he says, the saints and the poets, maybe, they do some. The saints and the poets. And so Emily heads back to the graveyard and essentially receives a round of I told you so's, as only dead people can give you, I'm sure. The most striking I told you so comes from a character named Simon Stimson. And he tells Emily with so much bitterness in his voice, that's what it was to be alive, to move about in a cloud of ignorance, to up and down, trampling on the feelings of those about you, to spend and waste time as though you had a million years, to always be at the mercy of one self-centered passion or another. And you find in Act 3 that Simon Stimson comes by that bitterness honestly. He was the town alcoholic. And you find that he died by suicide. And even in death, the townspeople, the ghosts in the scene in the graveyard scene, try to silence him and ignore him because his cynicism and his pain are just still too much for them. In the audience in this play, you can feel both sides of this moment, right? Because you don't like Simon Stinson. He's kind of a jerk and he's bitter. And his bitterness and his messy worldview are hard to deal with, right? It's uncomfortable. But on the other hand in the audience, you feel Simon Stimson because he ain't wrong. And as the characters, the ghosts, are coping with this scene, with Emily's realization, where Simon's cynicism and with Mrs. Gibbs, who's also a ghost in the scene, and Mrs. Gibbs' role she's playing in Act 3 is just like relentlessly trying to calm everyone down and get everybody to focus on the positive. And as they're kind of dealing with this aftermath of Emily's regression to life, Emily's husband, George, who's very much alive, comes walking up to her grave where ghost Emily is now standing. And he throws himself down in grief. In fact, the stage notes, I looked it up. The stage notes say, George sinks to his knees, then falls full length at Emily's feet. And this behavior is so unseemly to the ghosts watching him. They find it embarrassing behavior, right? But Emily says to Mrs. Gibbs, they don't understand, do they? And Mrs. Gibbs says, no, dear, they don't understand. Friends, let's try and understand. Let's try and be awake. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, take this day, take this moment, fully inhabit it and experience where you are, even if it's ordinary, even if it's sad, even if it's difficult, even if it's glorious. And watch how this practice changes the way you interact and communicate with those around you. Let's be the saints and the poets that the stage manager talks about, the ones that get it. Let's look at one another, especially in this season, in this holiday season. Let's slow down and look at one another. Shine on, you crazy diamonds.